Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of December 22nd, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Jeffcom looking into early morning countrywide, countywide emergency alert calls. Calls were for an incident in Lakewood by Deb Hurley Brobst for the Jeffco transcript. The truth behind the Sand Creek Massacre. History Colorado opens a new exhibit enhanced with Native American perspective. By Bruce Goldberg. Special to Colorado Community Media. Arvadans get festive for the holidays. All across Arvada, folks are getting in the holiday spirit with lights and decorations. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Ed Brady named Arvada Police Chief, succeeding retiring Link Strait. Brady has spent 29 years with APD, most recently as Deputy Chief, by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Hashtag hell of a season, a look at Mines football's historic year. War Diggers finish season NCAA Division II runner-up, by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript, and following up with various articles. Jeff Com looking into early morning countywide emergency alert calls. Calls were for an incident in Lakewood. By Deb Hurley Brobst. Residents throughout the county were awakened around 1 a.m. December 18th when phones rang and emails and texts were received regarding an emergency down the hill. Jeffcom 911, Jefferson County's Emergency Services Agency, has apologized for waking people unnecessarily. Our sincerest apology, Jeffcom 911 said on social media. We are aware of a lookout alert sent out this morning notifying residents of a shelter in place that may not have impacted them. We are looking into the case with the vendor. We apologize for any inconvenience or confusion this may have created. Jeff Streeter, Jeffcom 911's interim executive director, said the agency is working with its vendor for Lookout Alert, which is the agency's emergency notification system, to determine whether it was technology or human error that sent notifications to 160,000 people throughout the county rather than to residents in a specific area. The call informed residents that Lakewood Police had issued a shelter-in-place order because of an incident at 17th and Rob Street. This was very unfortunate, Streeter said. We apologize to everyone, everybody who has, was woken up. We know it's scary and trying, and it was not our intent by any stretch. He hopes people won't use this incident as a reason to opt out of Lookout Alert because it provides vital service to warn residents of emergencies. Instead, he hopes people see these calls as an indicator that the system can work. 
While we have gotten some negative comments on social media, Streeter said, honestly, we have had a lot of positive comments, too. They said at least they know the system works, and they were notified. Streeter noted that Lookout Alert notified, it every, notified everyone in Jefferson County who has signed up for the service, even when they were out of town. If this had been something like a Marshall fire, people who are out of town could have made arrangements, he said. According to a Jeffcom 911 social media post, quote, We know we can't make up for any sleep lost last night, but we hope you sleep a little better tonight, knowing the glitch you experienced has been fixed and the suspect in Lakewood was apprehended safely. Sign up for Lookout Alert. To sign up for Lookout Alert, Jefferson County's emergency notification system, text Lookout Alert without spaces to 67283. To get the link to register or visit jeffco.us backslash 473 slash emergency dash notifications. The truth behind the Sand Creek Massacre. History Colorado opens new exhibit enhanced with Native American perspective by Bruce Goldberg, special to Colorado Community Media. You see us, but you don't know who we were. Those are the words of Fred Mosqueda, a Southern Arapaho language and culture coordinator who spoke at the late November opening of the new, quote, Sand Creek Massacre, the betrayal that changed Cheyenne and Arapaho people forever. Exhibit at History Colorado. This is the beginning of learning. It educates you about what an Arapaho or Cheyenne are, Mosqueda added. This is a truthful story, as close as they can put it. End quote. The Sand Creek Massacre. Conflicts between Native Americans and white people worsened as more people migrated west. It led to a tragic confrontation on November 29, 1864, when members of the Colorado Territory Militia, under the leadership of U.S. Army Colonel John Shivington, attacked a peaceful village of Cheyenne and Arapaho people, who had been promised military protection. More than 230 women, children, and elders were killed. The village was located in northeast Kiowa County. The new exhibit at History Colorado puts on display the stark truth about how the U.S. federal and state governments mistreated Arapaho, Cheyenne, and other Native American tribes, breaking treaty after treaty. As you walk through there and see the photos and pictures, those are truthful, truthful statements from our Cheyenne and Arapaho people, Mosqueda said. Listening stations allow attendees to hear oral histories from descendants or survivors of the Sand Creek Massacre. Numerous display boards about the history of the Arapaho and Cheyenne tribes allow people to learn more about their way of living. Additional exhibit highlights include teepees built in Cheyenne and Arapaho styles, Native American clothing, and historical documents from investigations of the massacre. Audio guides are available in four languages, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Spanish, and English. A partnership, a decade in the making. 
Cultural appropriation, quote, is not solely a story in Denver. It's an international problem, said Sam Bach, exhibit developer and historian at History Colorado. Museums are reckoning with this long history of taking the cultures of native tribes, even stealing stuff from the tribes. History Colorado opened its original Sand Creek exhibit in 2012, but it drew criticism almost immediately. Native Americans were unhappy about not being consulted about its construction and alleged inaccuracies. Descendants of survivors of the attack demanded changes to the exhibit. The museum closed the display in June 2012 and started working with the Native Americans to produce a new, enhanced exhibit. Thus, a 10-year partnership between History Colorado and the three tribal nations, the Northern Cheyenne in Lame Deer, Montana, the Northern Arapaho in Riverton, Wyoming, and Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes in Concho, Oklahoma, began. Quote, The Sand Creek Massacre is sacred, said Gail Ridgely, Northern Arapaho, in a news release. Historic remembrance, educational awareness, and spiritual healing are very important for the Cheyenne and Arapaho people. Arvadans get festive for the holidays. All across Arvada, folks are getting in the holiday spirit with lights and decorations. By Riley Dunn. If you're inclined to go for an evening drive around Arvada this time of year, you'll likely be greeted by sprawling, expansive displays of holiday lights. People have been getting into the holiday spirit this year with the usual suspects. The house at 66th Avenue and Balsam Street consistently features massive light displays year after year. Joined by newcomers getting in on the fun for the first time. Ed Brady named Arvada Police Chief, succeeding retiring Link Strait. Brady has spent 29 years with APD, most recently as Deputy Chief. By Riley Dunn. In a move that was expected since Arvada Police Chief Link Strait announced his retirement on December 1st, Deputy Chief Ed Brady, a 29-year veteran of APD, will be Arvada's next police chief. Brady will be sworn in at the Arvada City Council meeting on December 19th. I'm incredibly grateful to be appointed as Chief of Police for the City of Arvada, Brady said. I'm honored to be in the ranks of so many dedicated professionals who go out and protect this community every day. Brady's APD tenure began in 1994. He has spent his entire law enforcement career with APD, where he has been Deputy Chief since 2014. He has served as Deputy Chief of Operations and Deputy Chief of Field Services. Prior to that, he held a variety of roles, including field training officer, firearms instructor, and investigator for the West Metro Drug Task Force. Brady was promoted to sergeant in 2003, where he took part in transitioning the department to a new records management system and worked on a ballot initiative to fund additional APD positions, which was passed in 2005. After being promoted to commander in 2007, Brady helped lead the department while it's implemented, it implemented its police community stations, which are still in place today. He also helped to implement a dictation software for records and helped revamp APD's field training and evaluation program. 
Earlier this year, Brady ran for Jefferson County Sheriff as a Republican, but ultimately lost the election to Democrat Regina Marinelli. Outgoing Chief Strait said that after everything APD has gone through, The past few years, the COVID-19 pandemic and the murders of APD officers Gordon Beasley and Dylan Bakoff killed in successive years. The consensus among the department and the city team was to hire an internal candidate. Quote, oftentimes, especially with an agency like Arvada, with as well known as it is nationally, they'll do a national search and go out there and do that, Strait said. But it's not necessary to do that with Ed Brady in-house and the credibility that he has. When you have that person in your department and you just know it. And Arvada has that luxury to where you have that guy. He's the guy. Ed is certainly a high-quality individual, Strait continued. Ed and I have worked together for decades, and we've had a great working relationship. We've kind of gone through this organization together. City Manager Lori Gillis led the internal search process that chose Brady. We are fortunate to have steady leadership in the Arvada Police Department, Gillis said. Ed has earned the respect and trust of the police department team as well as the city leadership team and city council. I am pleased to appoint him to lead the Arvada Police Department. Arvada Mayor Mark Williams praised the decision to have Brady take the department's reins. I am pleased that Ed Brady will be the next chief of police for the city of Arvada, Williams said. Ed is the right choice to serve the city organization and Arvada residents. His leadership will guide the Arvada Police Department through the opportunities and challenges facing our community. District 2 City Council member Lawrence Simpson also celebrated the decision. I am thrilled to have Ed as our chief of police, Simpson said. His dedication to the Arvada community and our brave police team members will help Arvada continue to be one of the safest cities in the front range. Brady and his wife, who works for Jeffco Public Schools, have four children and recently became first-time grandparents. More on outgoing Chief Strait's decision to retire. In an interview with the Arvada Press shortly after his announcement to retire, outgoing Chief Strait said that he hadn't planned to retire for long, but that recent years took their toll on the entire department, including him. Early on, I didn't want to go anywhere else, Strait said. After 35 years, I didn't intend to retire this early. But after the last four years, and certainly the last two years with the murder of Gordon Beasley and Dylan Bakoff, it was difficult. It was difficult to watch the department go through that. It was difficult to see that in everybody's eyes and to recognize that. Strait said that he considered the decision for a long time and added that Brady's availability following the election played into his decision. Ultimately, he didn't think he could get, he could see another officer get killed. Quite frankly, to wonder if I could do that again, Strait said, I just didn't. I just didn't know if I could do that again. So I recognize that I had an incredible career here, just very fortunate for everything that was afforded to me. And it was probably time. End quote. Hashtag hell of a season. A look at Mines Football's historic year. 
Ordigers finished season in CAA Division II, runner-up, by Corinne Westman. The Colorado School of Mines football team grew tremendously over the last five months. The team started out with two consecutive losses before winning 13 straight to make it to the first NCAA Division II National Championship appearance in the program's history. While defending champs Ferris State defeated Mines 41-14 in the December 17th title game, Coach Brandon Moore believed Mines will remain a football powerhouse and championship contender in the coming years. As the Ordiggers bring home the NCAA Division II runner-up trophy, the Golden Transcript offers a look back at the team's historic year. The Preseason The story of Mines football's 2022 season really begins almost a year ago. The team lost its first-ever NCAA semifinal game to Valdosta State 34-31 on December 11, 2021. Despite the loss, Moore, who was the defensive coordinator at the time, later said the Ordiggers learned they belonged in those big games. Moore was named Mines' new head coach on January 31, 2022. He and his colleagues worked to ensure the core of last year's team returned, including almost 30 fifth- and sixth-year seniors. Moore described later how the reason everyone stayed was because they believed they could win a national championship. By the first week of practice in August, the Ordiggers were excited to see so many talented and leadership-minded starters return. Linebacker Nolan Reeve described how he and his fellow seniors understood what standards they must meet to repeat last year's successes and more. Moore said of putting together a successful 2022 team, we won't be starting from zero. We'll be starting from at least halfway. The regular season. The Ordiggers went into the season ranked in the top 10 nationally, but their first two games were against fellow top 10 teams. Their September 3rd season opener was at Grand Valley State, and then they hosted Angelo State on September 10th. Mines lost both games by three points, the second one in overtime. Moore reflected on December 13th, how both those losses were extremely tough, but he knew the team would bounce back and accomplish great things. If anything, he said, losing those first two games only helped the ore diggers become better. Now they know the difference between a winning culture and a losing culture, he continued. Mines rallied after its first two losses and started rolling through its conference schedule. After the October 8th homecoming win, the team was 4-0 in RMAC play and 4-2 overall. The only conference game that appeared challenging for the Ore Diggers was the October 29th game at Western Colorado. Mines was down by 10 as the fourth quarter started, but the team regrouped and scored 20 unanswered points to win 30-20. On their November 12th Senior Day game, the Ore Diggers destroyed Fort Lewis 80-0. Mines won the conference title for the fourth straight year, and the 2022-23 senior class became the winningest in program history. Now, as the Ore Diggers described, it was time to start the so-called second season. The Playoffs In the NCAA Division II tournament bracket, Mines was named the number two seed in the Super Region 4. 
And for its first game of the postseason, the team was facing off against a familiar foe, fellow RMAC team CSU Pueblo. The Ore Diggers beat the Thunderwolves 45-17 in Golden earlier in the season, and the November 19th playoff game proved a similar story. Mines won 45-24. For its second-round opponent, Mines would be playing number 3 seed Minnesota State on November 26th. The Mavericks proved a tough opponent, even with Mines playing at home. Mines was down 14 points in the first half, but regained momentum thanks to three Josh Johnston touchdown receptions. At halftime, the game was tied at 28. In the second half, the Ordigers tried to create some breathing room, but the Mavericks wouldn't quite go away. With two minutes left in the game, Minnesota State narrowed Mines' lead to three points. The Mavericks went for an onside kick, which bounced through the first Ordigers' hands, but was secured by the second. After that, the Mines fans celebrated the narrow but certain victory. Next on the slate was a December 3rd quarterfinal game against undefeated number one seed Angelo State, the team responsible for the Mines' only home loss of the season. As Mines supporters watched from the visitor stands or online from Golden and beyond, Angelo State committed three turnovers on offense and special teams. The Ordickers capitalized and kept the Rams at arm's length during the second half, winning 42-24. On December 10th, Mines hosted Super Region 1 champion Shepard, as the Ordickers hoped to overcome last year's semifinal hurdle. In possibly the biggest athletic competition in Golden's history in terms of stakes and attendance, Mines found its rhythm in the second half and destroyed Shepard 44-13. After more than 130 years of football, the Ore Diggers finally punched their ticket to the national championship. The championship game. With thousands of Ore Digger supporters packing the stadium in McKinney, Texas, and thousands more watching around the world, the Mines football team kicked off December 17th against the defending champs, Ferris State. Unfortunately, for the Ore Diggers, the Bulldogs were well prepared to handle Division II's most explosive offense. Throughout the first half, senior quarterback John Matocha and his receivers struggled to connect. They were stifled by sacks, dropped passes, deflections, and suffocating defense. Meanwhile, Ferris State kept scoring at the other end, racking up two touchdowns and two fields. Just before halftime, the Bulldogs had a pick six to make it 27-0. Mines seemed to find some offensive rhythm in the third quarter and tried to chip away at the deficit. The Ore Diggers got on the board thanks to a quick touchdown reception by running back Michael Zeman. Wide receiver John Johnston had a 14-yard touchdown reception in the fourth quarter, but by then the deficit was too great and time too limited. As the clock finally hit zero, Ferris State celebrated its 41-14 victory and second straight national title. December 17th marked the final game for at least a dozen seniors, including Zeman, Johnston, center Matt Armendariz, and wide receiver Tristan Smith. Amid the loss, though, there was a silver lining. On December 16th, Motocha was named the 2022 Harlan Hill winner. The quarterback, who has another year of eligibility, thanked all the fans for their support and hoped to win next year's title game for them. Moore also believed this season's second-place finish will serve as a starting point for a 2023 National Championship run. 
We ventured a few steps further every year. Moore said of the program's first national title. We came up short this year, but we're excited for the future, and we fully expect to come out and win next year. Visit goldentranscript.net for additional Minds sports coverage. Or Digger Fever. Minds football fans rally behind team at local watch parties by Corinne Westerman. Like the Terminator, Colorado School of Mines players, coaches, and fans shared the same sentiment this weekend. They'll be back. The Mines football team lost in the NCAA Division II National Championship game, 41-14, to defending champs Ferris State on December 17th. The Ore Diggers were hoping to win the program's first national title. Thousands of Ore Digger fans made the trek to watch the team play in McKinney, Texas. Meanwhile, hundreds more turned out for watch parties in and around Golden, including at the Golden Mill, Woody's Wood-Fired Pizza, and Evergreen's The Wild Game. At the 11 a.m. kickoff, it was standing room only inside the Golden Mill. Hundreds of mine students, parents, alumni, and other fans had their eyes glued to the TV screens, cheering every time the team had a good play and singing the school fight song after the two Ordigger touchdowns. While the outcome wasn't what fans had hoped for, with many clearing out before the game ended, Golden's Tim and Ellen Hawkins believed they could be back for a watch party next year. Senior quarterback John Matocha, who won the 2022 Harlan Hill Trophy last week, has another year of eligibility left, Tim pointed out, so Mines has a good shot to repeat this year's successes. I'm happy they made it this far, he said of the team. It's a very academically rigorous school, and they have the privilege of playing on the finals. The Hawkins said one of their daughters is a current Mines student, while the other graduated from there. They frequent the Mines football games and talk to driving to McKinney for the national championship. However, they opted for the Golden Mills watch party, saying they had good conversations with Mines students and alumni. The watch party atmosphere was a lot of fun. They continued, even though the Ordickers didn't win. Highlands Ranch Ranch's Dylan Colstead, who graduated from Mines last spring, felt similarly. People were very excited to see the team go to its first title game, he described, so the place filled up quickly. He appreciated how Mines alumni of all ages showed up and added that he'd come back for a future watch party. Isabella Libonati, a junior at Mines, said there were more attendees than she'd expected but believed that only added to the energy. That was exactly why Lindsay Melville and her family... drove down from Westminster to watch the game in Golden. The family doesn't have any ties to mine specifically, but Melville has a lot of Golden connections. She said she and her family wanted to support a local team and watch the game with the students and other fans. Lee Begin, who graduated from Mines on December 16th, attended the watch party with family members and friends, were in town for his graduation. He's had classes with several of the football players and went to high school with junior linebacker Adrian Moreno. It's fun rooting for your friends and watching them succeed, he continued. 
While it was strange to see the crowds huddled around the TVs inside rather than outside like usual, Golden Mill co-owner Don Martin said the venue was, quote, the closest you can get to McKinney, Texas, in terms of Ordaker's spirit. He hoped to see Mines fans back at the Golden Mill soon to cheer on all the Ordaker teams, including football, next fall. Forced to flee, an asylum seeker charts her path in the Denver suburbs. By Robert Tan, Colorado Community Media, Local Life. Amid turmoil, a single mother strives to find community in the Denver metro area after leaving hers behind. In late 2018, a woman now raising her daughter near Denver made a life-changing decision. She would leave her home country of Venezuela, a choice she did everything she could not to make. The woman, a single mother in her mid-40s, had been enjoying an ambitious life of public service with a career that began in the government's transportation department when she was barely 19. She went on to become a nurse, a lawyer, a radio host, and eventually to teach at the college level. A threat on her life changed everything. I didn't choose to leave until I had a gun pointed to my forehead, she said, recounting the day military officers broke into her home and threatened her life. I fought hard not to try to move to Colorado. It was really, really hard. Having seen, quote, so many injustices, so many inequalities in her country, the woman charted a path of helping others. But the rise of Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela's president since 2013, altered her trajectory. She viewed Maduro's government as a brutal regime and spoke out against it. Attending protests and using her platform as an educator to call attention to human, human rights abuses that have been documented by United Nations investigators. This is how she became an asylum seeker in Denver. One of thousands of immigrants in the area who fled their home country, fearing for their safety. According to TRAC, Track Immigration, a database of federal immigration data compiled and published by Syracuse University, Denver's Immigration Court reviewed 2,875 applications for asylum between fiscal years 2018 and 2022. As she currently waits, a court's verdict on her asylum, which will determine her legal status in the United States, the single mom has found some security. In 2020, she and her daughter, who is middle school-aged, received temporary protected status, a form of legal protection which allows some immigrants to live and work legally in the U.S., but which must be renewed every two years. Venezuela is one of 15 countries designated for this protection by the federal government. According to Violeta Chapin, a clinical professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School, the protection is meant for those living in the U.S. facing situations that make it, quote, impossible for individuals of that country to return back. Those with this protection, quote, have no immigration status. They're just protected from removal for a temporary period of time, 
Chapin said. It means until a decision is made on her asylum case, the woman remains in legal limbo, according to Chapin. If she is granted asylum, it affords her more access to the social safety net, along with greater work opportunities. If she is denied, she can still hold on to her temporary status and seek to renew it over the coming years. But she will not be recognized as an immigrant and could face deportation if her status is not renewed. The United States immigration system is extraordinary, extraordinarily restrictive, Chapin said. It's set up to make it very difficult to lawfully enter and live in the United States. Who is going to trust me? The days leading up to the woman's departure from her home country were a desperate blur. As threats on her safety escalated, a colleague living in Denver reached out to help. Her son, in his mid-twenties, fled to Peru on foot, where he lives today. Before leaving, the woman sold everything she owned, including her car, for about $1,300. With enough money in hand to flee, she flew to Denver with her daughter and another resident who was living in their former apartment complex. Of the few possessions she brought with her was a binder full of her credentials, degrees, licenses, awards, and honors. With her career experiences, she had hoped to buoy, buoy her survival in America and secure a good-paying job to support her family. But within days, doubt began to set in. Who was going to trust me, she said. I felt seen as an intruder, but I had so much to offer. The colleague who offered to help them found them an apartment to rent in the Denver suburbs. He put his name on the lease because she lacked the paperwork to get one on her own and charged her $900 for a deposit. But after 10 days, they were all kicked out. Her colleague had become emotionally and mentally unstable, she said. The neighbor who had flown to the U.S. with her decided it was time to part ways and has not been seen since, the single mom said. It was December and the days were becoming shorter, darker, Calder. It was the middle of the winter with a little kid. I didn't know what to do, the woman said. I'm running out of money, but I cannot go back to Venezuela. Solace came when she returned to her daughter's school district, where she had enrolled her daughter in a middle school while they were housed. A parent of one of her daughter's friends offered them temporary stay at their home, while she looked for a new apartment. Public schools have been a crucial pillar of support for undocumented residents, according to Chapin. That's thanks to a 1982 Supreme Court ruling, Plyer v. Dow, which prohibits public school districts from denying enrollment to the children of undocumented immigrants. With a temporary roof and place to sleep, the single mom knocked on door after door wherever she saw an apartment available, worried that she was overstaying her welcome. But deposits for every apartment she found were $1,000 or more, nearly eclipsing what money she had saved, and, quote, everyone asked for papers, she said, of which she only had a passport. What really surprised me now looking back is the lack of solidarity, the lack of empathy for people, she said. I was not here because I wanted to. I had to run away. 
Some relief came when a friend living in Miami sent the woman cash for a deposit. With it, she found a studio apartment outside Denver that a landlord allowed her to lease. Though rent was about $1,000 per month, she cut a deal with the landlord for $2 off, $200 off in exchange for her cleaning the outside of the building. Her deposit was $1,300. She said she couldn't have been more grateful. All I had was my word, and he took it, she said. The woman had no access to safety net programs like SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, so she turned to a nearby church for newer nourishment. Whatever money she had left from the month would sometimes go to a toy for her young daughter. The woman said she was determined to provide whatever momentary escape she could hope for. But the fear of losing everything, of coming up a few dollars short for her rent, always loomed large for her. It still does. Thousands, millions, living in uncertainty. When the single mother applied for asylum in 2019, she could not afford a lawyer to help with her case, though she has since found voluntary legal aid. Chapin said U.S. immigration courts do not provide free public defenders for asylum seekers. And whether an applicant has a lawyer or not can make a huge difference in the outcome of their case, Chapin said, with most asylum cases being denied. According to the Syracuse University database of the more than 5,000 immigrants who applied for asylum through Denver's immigration court between 2001 and 2002, more than 2,900 were denied. The single mom does not know when her case will be decided. There are a lot of people applying for immigration and asylum benefits. There's a lot of stress on the system right now, Chapin said. The single mom found some comfort when, in 2020, she and her daughter were granted their protected status. Since then, she has worked, quote, everything, anywhere. Her heavy binder of credentials going unnoticed as she took jobs cleaning hotel rooms and serving food in restaurants. Even with multiple jobs, the woman she said she faced financial uncertainty as she struggled to pay for housing, food, and everything in between. You have to take on so many hours to work, she said. In this county, to survive, you need at least two jobs. In 2020, she moved to a new apartment, allowing her daughter to be closer to her school. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, her landlord raised rent from 1050 to 1350 Again, she moved. Shortly before 2021, she found a one-bedroom apartment in a Denver suburb where she lives today. It is dotted with reminders of home, including her country's flag hanging in the living room and photos of her son on the wall. She pays $1,200. Her deposit was $500. I have no ability to save, she said. Deposits were a big burden. Recently, her income has steadied. She now works at an embroidery shop where she brings in about $2,000 each month. The rest she makes up driving for food delivery services, a job that at least affords her the opportunity to spend more time with her daughter. They listen to music on those drives or just talk. Through all the discord, she said she's worried most for her daughter's well-being. When she can, she'll make a homemade meal, something healthy, usually Venezuelan. For her serve, herself, 
she has gone through some therapy programs after becoming depressive and anxious. She does not want her daughter to feel the burden of her mental health. She said, what she wants more than anything now is to make a home where she can for herself and her child. Chapin said the woman's story of survival is the same as, quote, thousands, millions of immigrants who live this existence every day. To build something beautiful. The asylum seeker said she is still waiting for the hard work to pay off to see, quote, the end of the tunnel. But beyond just surviving, she wants to thrive. The time that I'm supposed to be here in the United States is to build something beautiful, is to give something back, she said. Home is love, work, dedication, solidarity. She's currently taking online classes through Metropolitan State University of Denver in social communications, hoping to use the education to land a job in social work and reignite her passion for building community. Though she has seen growth in her English skills over the past four years, she wants to take college classes to improve the prospects of her career. The most inexpensive course she found was about $6,000 per semester at the Community College of Denver. Too much for her to spend currently. That money instead goes to rent. While the change in her living situation has been night and day, she said it's precarious. It would only take a rent increase of about $200 for her to no longer be able to afford her apartment, she said. I'm living in the present right now, and that's all I can afford to think about, she said. Yes, I can only pay so much, and yes, we are in a very tight budget. But I get to spend quality time with my daughter. We only have each other. According to Chapin, there are numerous reforms to U.S. immigration policy that could benefit residents living in uncertainty. About 11 million immigrants are undocumented in the U.S., Chapin said, and staffing issues have left immigration courts across the country backlogged. For many immigrants, it can mean years waiting for a decision on their future. Even with temporary protected status, many still face low-wage jobs as their only choice for employment. It is difficult for immigrants to translate credentials they earned in their home country to work in the U.S., Chapin said, and doing so comes at a large financial cost. Allowing immigrants to use their qualifications to work more skilled jobs and authorizing citizenship for most of the 11 million already here, quote, would benefit the economy tremendously, Chapin said, given the U.S. is, quote, desperate for labor. This need has been a major driver behind the immigration reform championed by U.S. Representative Jason Crow, who represents Colorado's 6th Congressional District. We have a lot of people in Colorado who've immigrated from all over the world who have some substantial skills, Crow said. It takes a long time to translate those licenses and certifications. This fall, Crow helped introduce the bipartisan Bridging the Gap for New Americans Act, which passed in both chambers of Congress before President Joe Biden signed it into law October 17th. Over the next year, the legislation will direct the U.S. Department of Commerce to study how it can expedite translating out-of-country credentials. Crow said the findings will likely spur more legislation to overhaul the process and allow immigrants more access to higher-wage professions. They can buy homes. They can enter our economy more fully. They can send their kids to college, said Crow 
who added this would be crucial, quote, to addressing the sustainable workforce shortage in our country. But beyond the potential economic impacts, Crow said immigration reform is a moral issue. When the current laws and systems don't treat people with basic dignity and respect, that alone is the reason to reform and change this, he said. Adding he is optimistic of bolder immigration legislation to come. For immigrants, like the single mom in Denver's suburbs, she is determined to build her on her new life as she strives to find what she loved most about her home. A sense of belonging. Often her mind wanders to her home country, to what she's left behind. She talks every day on the phone with her son in Peru, who's made a family of his own with his partner and their child. Clasped safely in the folds of her heavy binder, amid her many certifications and credentials is a letter from him. It reads, Thank you so much for everything you've given me and taught me throughout life. It hasn't been an easy road for both of us, I know, but it's been worth it. I will try to prove myself to you for the rest of my life. You've done a good job. Editor's note, as an immigrant seeking, as an immigrant with temporary protected status seeking asylum through the U.S. court system, Colorado Community Media withheld the source's name and other identifying factors to protect her identity. Her interviews were conducted through an English-Spanish interpreter. All quotes from her have been interpreted from Spanish to English. Immigration des Designations The United States has numerous designations for a person's immigration status, each with its own caveats that dictate the legality of what a person can and cannot do. Here are what some of these statuses mean according to immigration law and law professor Violetta Chapin. Refugee. Refugee status is granted to immigrants before they leave their home country. Refugees are authorized to live and work legally in the U.S. and are eligible for safety net programs, but cannot vote. Most recently, a large amount of refugees in the U.S. have been from Afghanistan and Ukraine. Asylum. This is similar to refugee status, but it is granted to someone after they come to the U.S., because asylum can take months or years to be processed, some immigrants have the option of pursuing a temporary status in the meantime to afford them some legal protections and work authorization. Temporary protected status. This status is only for people fleeing turmoil from certain countries. Currently, the U.S. has designated 15 countries for temporary protected status. Once granted, it must be renewed every two years, and does not allow recipients to be eligible for federal programs. Though they can be eligible for some state benefits depending on state law. Green card. This status, officially called a lawful permanent resident, but more commonly known as a green card, affords immigrants nearly all the benefits and rights as a U.S. citizen with the exception of voting. For asylees, those granted asylum, they must wait one year after receiving asylum to apply for a green card. Green cards typically need to be renewed every 10 years. Naturalization. The final stage of immigration. With naturalization, immigrants are considered fully legal U.S. citizens and can vote in any and all U.S. elections. Status does not need to be renewed. 
Asylees can apply for it for five years after receiving asylum and will need to pass a civics test to receive the status. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite I'll be reading, The state took these properties to expand I-70. Now they're empty lots and the community wants them back. By Rebecca Tauber. And, Climate advocates want Denver to ban natural gas in new buildings, but it won't happen just yet, by Rebecca Tauber and Sam Brosh. From Westward, I'll be reading, Coloradan helps create clown coin, a new meme cryptocurrency, by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. And, Denver opens Coliseum as warming center for homeless, also by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. The state took these properties to expand I-70. Now they're empty lots and the community wants them back, by Rebecca Tauber. In 2016, as Colorado began work on a contentious plan to widen I-70, the state relocated El Rio Swansea residents whose homes and businesses stood in the way. Colorado Department of Transportation, CDOT, acquired 74 properties through eminent domain as part of the controversial $1.2 billion project that lowered the highway, demolished the viaduct dividing the neighborhood, and built a park in its place. CDOT paid for owners and renters to move into new housing, and for some renters to become owners through relocation assistance. But some residents affected at the time struggled to find housing that matched their needs and met federal requirements in a competitive market. Others had to leave the neighborhood they had called home for years. Now, a few of those properties taken from residents and business owners sit empty as dirt lots, ultimately not part of the permanent project. With construction having wrapped in November, the community wants the plots back to build housing on them. It's unclear why the state took property from residents that would ultimately sit empty. The project did not unnecessarily purchase homes or businesses, said CDOT spokesperson Stacia Sellers. If it was determined that additional property was needed, we would evaluate how much of the property was going to be impacted. If the impacts to the property were significant and altered the property's functionality, we would purchase the entire property. The remnant parcels are primarily very small slivers of land. CDOT did not provide answers about the use of specific parcels during the project, and the construction company, Kiwit, did not respond to requests for comment. CDOT Executive Director Shoshona Liu said that having leftover property is normal for a construction project of this size, as some land can be temporarily used for things like office space that is removed upon completion of a project. But the empty lots aren't all tiny slivers of land, and with the project finished, Community members want what was there before, housing. Longtime residents in El Rio Swansea have seen rising property values over the years and worry about ongoing gentrification, especially now that a large community park sits where a crumbling viaduct used to be. Looking at the empty lots, community advocates see an opportunity to build housing. 
Some of the parcels sit in more industrial areas ill-suited for community development, but a few lie at the end of residential blocks lined with single-family homes and are big enough for new buildings. Before the construction, the properties at the end of the block facing I-70 were adjacent to the towering viaduct with the highway rumbling overhead. Today, the empty lots are still next to I-70, but it's a lot quieter with the highway lowered. State regulations require CDOT to get the property appraised and sell it at market value. The prices of leftover lots will almost certainly be higher than what the state originally paid residents as property values have risen and the I-70 project itself decreased the prominence of the highway and brought a new park. It's kind of ironic that the project itself has actually raised the value, said Nola Miguel, co-director of the community group GES Coalition. With GES Coalition, Miguel has been applying for state and federal funds to purchase plots for a land trust for the community. Councilwoman Candy Sudabaka represents El Rio Swansea and organized against the project as an activist before her election to council. She sees the effort to regain the land as connected to indigenous land back movements, as well as efforts across the country to repair harm caused by highway development that separated low-income, non-white neighborhoods like hers in the 1960s. It's infuriating to walk through my community and see that there are remnant parcels that were once neighbors, she said, but I do think that the best solution is just to return the land to the community. CDOT says they expect to have appraisals sometime in 2023. In the meantime, Miguel is applying for $2 million for three properties. 4631 Josephine Street, 4542 Fillmore Street, and 4625 Milwaukee Street. Miguel said her figure might be high, but that she'd rather overestimate than come up short. Property records show that CDOT paid 285000 for 4625 Milwaukee Street in 2018, but it's unclear how much the state paid for the other two properties. Miguel said she can't help but wish that any potential leftover land was included in negotiations about the project to begin with. When CDOT was first developing the project, activists pushed back about air quality and noise concerns and ended up winning a $500,000 settlement with additional promises for health studies and the park. I think there's definitely that feeling of these are the community's parcels. There shouldn't be this question of how we pay for them. State regulations say that local municipalities are given the first opportunity to purchase leftover land, but Miguel said CDOT has expressed a willingness to work with the community. They have been openly showing us what the parcels are and trying to figure out how we could get them into the land trust, she said. I think there's an agreed-upon desire to do so. Sudabaka said the city, which has the chance to purchase land first, also wants to work with GES Coalition. The city is well aware of the community's expectation of CDOT, and I believe they're going to honor that commitment, Sudabaka said. Now the question remains how to pay for it. GES Coalition made it to the final round for a federal funding program, but ultimately did not get the money. Miguel is worried, but appraisals won't happen until sometime in 2023. In the meantime, she's applying for state funding with the hope that something will come through. Climate advocates want Denver to ban natural gas in new buildings, but it won't happen just yet, by Rebecca Tauber and Sam Brosh. Denver won't become the latest community to ban natural gas in new residential buildings just yet. 
Councilman Jolin Clark proposed a ban to the city's upcoming building code, but city council held off on adding the amendment, citing a need for more information before moving forward. On Tuesday, a city council subcommittee voted to advance the construction standards to a vote before the full council without the prohibition in place. But council can amend building codes any time within their three-year lifespan, so Clark suggested additional meetings in the next few months to consider adding the amendment after the code passes. Many council members spoke in support of the ban, but said they wanted additional information, such as a more detailed phase-in plan and testimony from experts in cities that have implemented similar policies. Natural gas bans have become a flashpoint in local climate politics since 2019, when Berkeley, California voted to exclude them from all future construction. San Francisco followed with its own ban the next year. New York City followed in 2021, and New York Governor Kathy, Kathy Hochul has promised to enact a statewide prohibition by 2027. In August, Crested Butte became the first municipality in Colorado to make the switch, which will go into effect in January. All the action in progressive communities has inspired a Republican backlash. 21 GOP-led states have adopted so-called preemption laws to stop local governments from taking similar action. Climate activists in Denver see the ban as one of the biggest steps the city could take to fight climate change. Many community members spoke in favor of the gas ban at the committee meeting Tuesday. We don't want anyone stuck in homes burning polluted gas said Nikki Day, a member of Black Parents United Foundation. We want our new homes in Denver to be free of health hazards, unsustainable costs, and climate impacts of burning gas. Proponents of the amendment cited studies that show all electric homes can be cheaper to build and save residents money on utility bills, especially with energy bills so high right now. Electric homes save people money, said Ann Kramer at the committee meeting. I know this from personal experience seeing my utility bills go down, even while I had my AC blasting during 100-degree days. Christine Brinker, Senior Buildings Policy Manager with Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, has been advocating for the ban and is happy with the outcome at City Council. There's a lot she likes in the existing building code update, like energy requirements for commercial and multifamily buildings, and has hope that a ban can take shape in the next few months. I thought it was a solid base hit, she said. It's important for the climate, for health, for safety, and for ongoing affordability of our housing stock in Colorado. We, w- we know that every new fossil fuel connection locks us into fossil fuel for decades, or it burdens future homeowners with literally thousands of dollars of extra costs to convert over to electric in the future. The following articles are from Westward. Coloradan helps create Clown Coin, a new meme cryptocurrency, by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. Amid the current bear market in the crypto world, one Coloradan still sees value in the field and has co-created a new cryptocurrency, Clown Coin. We found that people loved making clown content. Clowns are very memeable, says Dave Matarachi a co-founder of ClownCoin. There's unlimited clown content in the world, whether that be the Joker or It or Ronald McDonald. We incorporate the fun aspect. Clowns have been known to bring joy and laughter, 
And that's what we want to bring, is joy and laughter and a fun time to investing. Matarachi, who is based in Pueblo and works as a first responder, launched the meme coin back in May together with 